Hi everyone, my name is PK here. I'm so honored to have Jeremy Shepard join me today. Long overdue, we're going to be going into really the key mistakes that I think mostly new, but even experienced property investors make more from a, a pure data perspective. So a quick agenda or quick contents we're going to go through, like do capital cities really grow more than regional areas? Is yield and growth mutually exclusive or can you actually get the holy grail? Can you get bro both? Is growth better? closer to the CBD, closer to the ocean and higher income areas and more premium areas? Does population growth actually correlate with capital growth? So many, like I would say, things that if you're a new investor, all these different people, including maybe course creators, buyers agents are feeding you and you're just making like really terrible decisions in terms of location and property selection. So Jeremy here, I would say, I'm a huge fan of just straight off the bat, but also what I really admire of Jeremy and he probably doesn't like me or anyone saying this is that he's, he's a, I almost think of him like an academic. He's like one of these unassuming, humble people that just sort of tinker away in the data for data's sake, you know, real true love of data with no agenda, with no bias, with no innuendos. And if we can kind of exploit is the wrong word, but if we can tap into his mind for the next 30 minutes, 60 minutes, that I'm sure we will all make, you know, multiple hundreds of thousand dollars more by the time we retire. So it's like a really critical session. And I'm not just bigging up Jeremy for, for bigging up sake, but I truly mean everything that I've said. So thank you so much, Jeremy, for making time today. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks, PK. I've got to, I've got to go and change my content now to try and live up to, to that introduction. <laughs> No, I mean, it's it's been I've I've personally seen uh, what you do benefiting so many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. So, yeah, I'm just I'm happy to, to have you on my platform and, and very honored. Welcome to the Oz Property Investment Mastery Podcast. My name is PK and I help busy people build passive income by buying top 5% growth and cash flow property and build a portfolio using data without wasting months doing research, spending weekends at inspection or catching flights or dropping ten dollars to $20,000 on buyer's agents every single time. So if you're confused, lack confidence and just overwhelmed with all the information and marketing misinformation available online and don't know where to start, then this show is for you. I don't think enough people know your own journey, like, cause you're actually, although you probably won't admit it, you're actually a successful property investor in your own right. Um, maybe if you just like take us through the, your journey from sort of property one all the way to 16, um, however you want to do that. And I might cut in and ask you some questions in the middle. We will get to the true data points of it later, but I just want to establish your portfolio and, and see what we can learn from it really. Sure. Yeah. Well, loads of mistakes in this and yeah i hope that uh when i cringe when i recount these these mistakes i hope that other investors who are listening and i don't make the same mistakes so uh, i bought my first investment property in uh, 2006 sorry 2002 and it was a two hundred and six thousand dollar property it's in western sydney like very west of, of sydney and um i my plan was uh, I, I wanted to buy a property that had good cash flow. So I was after high yields. I bought a house with a granny flat. I was going to uh, renovate the house. The granny flat was relatively new. And the the vendor got in touch with me 
and and said, hey, do you want a, a tenant who can live in the granny flat uh, whilst you're getting the house renovated? And I thought, oh, that's great. I, you know, I've got some some cash flow there. And uh, whilst the house was being renovated, this this uh, tenant moved in, a uh, young family actually, um, and they they basically never paid a cent in rent, and um, uh, they were there for about six months. I cu- I couldn't get rid of them. I had to hire a professional property manager to uh, to get rid of them. The tradesmen who were renovating the property, um, they. they they pulled down and said, Jeremy, we're not doing anything more until you get rid of that tenant because they're stealing our stuff. So some tiles would come in, for example, and they'd be gone the next day and they just believed it was the tenant doing it. Um, anyway, I think it was the day before the sheriff was to come and, and forcibly uh, evict them. Uh, they did leave, but they they locked up all the drains in the house and left the taps running to to flood the house you know, which you do when you've got free rent and it's taken away from you. So my first experience with, with property investing was was pretty miserable. I made a lot of mistakes. I didn't uh I didn't vet the uh the um the tenant. I didn't hire a professional property manager. Um and a year later I finally finished the renovation and I can remember asking some uh, local agents to come in and, and value the property. And they valued it, bank valued it at around about $300,000. So I'd, I'd added $94,000 of value. And I thought that was because of my renovation. I think I might, I might have spent $30,000, $35,000 on the reno. Um, but what I didn't know was that during that period of time, there was a massive amount of capital growth taking place in that area. In fact, all around Australia in the early 2000s, there was, there was a boom. And yeah, it took me probably a decade to realise that I'd gotten lucky, not just in that case, but uh, in in property number two, which was only a stone's throw away, I bought in uh, 2003, similar sort of situation, house with a granny flat, um, uh, and I renovated. And uh, then I bought in in uh, Rockhampton. I bought, bought three houses in Rockhampton. This is in 2004. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was in pursuit of, of really high yields there. and. Uh, uh, again, I did a reno there. Uh, I th- think I did a couple. Um, and again, it was just great, uh, chance coincidental that, that I picked a good growth market and got into property investing at a good, good time. So I thought I was being a really successful property investor, but, but, uh, really I was wasting my time with a lot of these renos, yeah. uh, and it was capital growth that was doing, I could have been sitting on my hands, uh, gaining yeah. equity instead of wearing them to to the nails uh because i was going to ask you because most people in property circles know you as like you know the creator and founder of dsr data which is a fantastic platform and now you're working on something else as well like had you delved into real estate data before these purchases from the sound of it you hadn't really or no no i i mean i used to look at a very small amount of data I, I was one of those cash flow crazy investors pursuing high yield. Uh, you know, I think a, a lot of people make this mistake where they think, look, I can buy this property right now and it's going to put $100 a month in my pocket. All I need is, you know, four more of these and, you know, I'm sitting pretty. But they don't think through, well, how do you get the, the remaining four? And that's what, why I realized later on how important capital growth was. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I used to, I, I would look at a very small amount of data. 
and I was mostly just pursuing yield. I didn't know what what caused capital growth back then when I was a noob. Um, it's funny, yeah. I still classified myself a noob, um, you know, a, a novice investor when I had sixteen properties in the portfolio because I learnt so much from the mistakes of those those sixteen properties. But yeah, so I bought bought three properties um, in Rockhampton. I bought another one in Tassie. Um, I think that was two thousand and four. Um, it gets a little bit blurry in the middle. <laughs> I know I bought bought one in Western Australia. Yeah, and this is another one of the the huge mistakes that I made because I was very aggressive in in the accumulation phase. I used all sorts of tricks, um, creative finance, we'll call it. Uh, one of these properties I bought in Western Australia uh, was with a second mortgage, so I got a bank to lend me eighty percent, and the vendor uh, to lend me. 20%. So all I had to do is pay stamp duty and legal fees. Right. And I remember looking at a spreadsheet and calculating return on investment. I thought, if this property just goes up by 4%, it'll be the most profitable deal I've ever had. And uh, and based on that, I thought I was you know really clever. Uh, it went down by about 14%. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then the, the second mortgage uh, came due, I had to pay that back, and so I'm looking for equity and other properties. Anyway, that's uh, that. I'm I'm getting ahead there. Um, in 2006, in pursuit of of my yield again, uh, I went over to New Zealand and I bought uh, six houses in a in a um, suburb there called Pokoroa, uh, and uh, they're all very cheap, very high yields, like double digit, like a 10 percent sort of gross right. rental yield. Obviously, a lot lower when you when you factor in all the expenses, you know, the net yield and so on. And again, very lucky um, that that place was having tremendous capital growth at the time. Uh, but but this sort of fantastic growth doesn't last forever, mm-hmm. and quite often there's a, a retraction. Um, I then headed off to the USA to um, purchase some some property there. Uh, that took a lot of effort, uh, building up credit score, setting up a company, and so on. Uh, I put a deposit down on two properties, uh, and then my my broker contacted me and said, "Jeremy, uh, we've had a thing happen here. It's called the subprime lending crisis, and <laughs> you're not going to get any any finance." And so I had to back out of those those two deals, and of course that eventually came to Australia, mm. and uh, yeah, it was it was horrible for me. Whilst interest rates of of um, uh, banks here in Australia were, were going down because it's you know recessionary times. Uh, my creative finance interest rates went up. Uh, I remember I was paying something like eleven and a half percent interest on on one mortgage, and it was a pretty big mortgage. So when the lesson that I learned there was, you don't want to find the absolute best mortgage. In where there's no other lender that will deal with you because once they increase their interest rates, you've, you've got nowhere else you can go. Right. Your only option is to sell. And so I had to sell down a significant portion of the, of the portfolio at a time when prices had dipped and some of them had, had negative equity. Um, and yeah, it was a terrible situation to be in. Uh, let's see if I've gone through all the properties. So there were six in New Zealand. There was one in Western Australia, one in Tassie. Um, there were there were three in Queensland. Oh yeah, so I bought another one in um, in South Australia, um, uh, Christie's Beach, around uh, thirty minutes drive south of of Adelaide, and uh, another one in Gladstone. 
the one in Gladstone, yeah, I bought the, bought those in 2008. Uh, so I bought a, a report from someone who I won't mention their name, but um, it's like a they, they sell reports for hotspots, growth, growth hotspots. And um, I remember at the time, I couldn't pick between Geraldton in Western Australia, Gladstone in Queensland, the Gippsland region um, to the east of Victoria. Um, uh, yeah, Morwell was, was one area I was looking at, and, and this Christie's Beach. And, uh, but I, I'm fortunate that I only bought in two of those locations because they were, they were terrible. All four were terrible. In fact, 10 years later, I remember doing the calcs and they had, they had grown by 1.5% on average. That's total, not per, per annum right. after 10 years. So this property that I bought in Gladstone, uh, I paid about 300000 for it in 2008. I sold it uh, the end of 2022. So yeah, not so long ago, 14 yeah. years later for 20% less than what I paid for it. Gosh. <laughs> and there were some shocking vacancy rates. I remember um, just scrounging for 150 bucks. Okay, we'll have a tenant in for 150 bucks just so that I've got someone there. Yeah. Um, you know, the research that they had done, um, well, I didn't know what research to do uh, either, so I guess I can't really blame them. Uh, but, yeah, thoroughly terrible. Um I calculate an opportunity cost of close to a million dollars with with that one investment, and I've made other mistakes along the way too. So yeah, te terrible portfolio, way too aggressive in the accumulation phase, um, uneducated in in where to buy and when, um, and yeah, I've learnt from a lot of mistakes. Right. And uh, yeah, I've sold down a significant portion of that portfolio. I have something that's quite manageable now. Uh, in fact, there's one probably I'd still like to sell. Um, but, but I'm, I am in a position where I can accumulate more and, and I don't think I'll ever go to those dizzy heights ever again. I just, uh, I can remember just end of month, just putting all those rental statements together, uh, keeping track of things for my accountant. It was, it was just a nightmare. So I just want something that's, uh, quality, reliable, um, low maintenance, and yeah, I don't mind having some money in the bank either. It doesn't all have to be invested in property. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so pretty bad story. Loads of loads of mistakes that I hope other people learn from. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It uh, takes a lot to share your mistakes, but it's really valuable for everyone else who can avoid making them in the future. I guess one thing is, yeah, don't buy a random report, or, or for that matter, don't just like listen to random tips on on suburbs or locations from me or or anyone on social media facebook youtube this and that without actually i guess like getting into the nitty-gritty and understanding the rationale and and having conviction in it for yourself because you know everyone says a different thing conflicting advice a lot of research reports can be wrong but what strikes me like very like just really just comes out at me jeremy is that you know you obviously you're a data orientated person and and for all intents and purposes at least from what i can see like very rational and and like thoughtful and measured and considered um why do you think you you know and i'm asking for the benefit of everyone why do you think you you made those all these mistakes was it like fomo what did you read that steve mcknight book 100 to 150 properties and like why did you why did you make these mistakes because you're actually a very intelligent person <laughs> good question um it's what got me into investing to begin with. Um, so when I was in my early 30s, 
uh, I realized I was in, I was in a position where I, I hadn't saved anything. I didn't have anything. Um, so I used to be quite a uh, religious sort of person, and uh, I gave pretty much all my money to the church that I was attending. So I was just uh, living at home with mum and dad uh, to keep the cash flow uh, good. I, I was working in IT, earning a decent coin there, and um, and I was really just I, I was giving away roughly eighty percent of of what I earned, wow. and just living off off. The, the little twenty percent because I be, I believed in something. When I uh, when I left uh, the church, I realised, oh wow, I'm I am way behind. I own nothing. I had practically no savings. I had a car which I, I later sold for about six hundred bucks, um, and I didn't even have super because what I'd done is when I was working in IT, I was doing contract work, and I set up a trading trust. So that I could distribute from the trust to the church directly, um, and then pay myself a, a very small salary and pay a very small amount of tax on that. And uh, because it was a distribution, sorry, not a salary, uh, it didn't trigger the um, compulsory ten percent superannuation contribution. Yeah, and uh, yeah, my super fund would send me a, a letter each six months or so telling me uh, here's how much of your money we've lost and here's our fee for for doing that and uh, eventually <laughs> the balance came down to zero uh, so I literally had nothing more than like a few hundred dollars in the bank mm-hmm. and um, I realized I was behind and I needed to catch up and so that's when I got very aggressive I, I bought all the books I could I did courses and learned everything I could about investing uh, in shares. Right, and um, it took a couple of years to realise that I didn't know what I was doing there either. Uh, and again, I was I was way too aggressive, lost money, and and that's when I switched to property, which to me just just made more sense. Uh, I'm a human being; I know what I want to live in, so um, I, I can think about things like oh, I want to be close to the train station, for example. So, um, to answer your question, I felt like I was behind and. A bit like you know the the, the gambler's conundrum. Um, well, I've lost that money. The only way to get it back is I got to win the next one, and and I just kept going very aggressively. And yeah, so I would I would encourage all investors to just um, you know if the bank says no, uh, take a hint. Um, certainly educate yourself as as well as you can, and don't be in a rush. Because right. yeah, this sort of thing takes time. That's that's really sage advice because normally what I'm telling my audience is if one bank is saying no, then go to another bank or go to a second tier lender and they might open up some opportunities. But there's really something to be said about experience. And yeah, I think that that's really good advice. At least think about why the bank is saying no and, and be prudent yeah. and, and model out your cash flows to see if they're actually yeah, right or wrong. At least have another bank that might say yes. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to be in a position where you can't vote with your feet. Yeah. Yeah. And so is that, we will get to the data because I I do want to get to that, but I'm just finding this really interesting. Um, So is that kind of after your first decade um, from 2002 to like 2012 or whatever of somewhat success, but also like a lot of learning is, was it frustration that kind of got you to a point in real estate where you were like, you know what, to hell with these paid research reports, to hell with all of my mistakes. I'm just going to like, 
dive real deep into the data and I really understand it for myself? Or was it like, I'm sure other people are making mistakes. Let me create some sort of data platform for others. Like where did DSR come from? Um, yeah, I guess it was, it was just for me, obviously, originally. Um, but what I wanted to know was, um, where's the best place in Australia for me to put my money right now? And, uh, you know, there's only so many suburbs you can visit yourself personally. So I wanted some some automated way of of assessing a suburb so that I could narrow the search down to a handful uh, that then I, I could go to maybe and visit or, or or jump online and do some further research. And uh, I because I've been working in IT, I, I had some skills to acquire some data. I knew there were some websites I could go to realestate.com.au and domain and various others to to acquire some data. And uh, it dawned on me, finally, after 16 properties, what it is that that uh, causes capital growth and why capital growth is so important. Um, and it's it's supply and demand. and And I thought, well, looking at all these all this data, how can I get some idea of the nature of supply and demand in a property market? Mm. So things like I knew that there were auction clearance rates that are published. Uh, I, I I knew about uh, vacancy rates and and a few other metrics, and I started uh, inventing some of my own and and just acquiring as much data as I could nationwide, so that I could come up with this this algorithm. That was two thousand and nine, towards the end of two thousand and nine, that I put all that together. And uh, yeah, I can remember um, in January two thousand and ten, uh, I've got. Nationwide version one of the demand to supply ratio, the DSR version one. Uh, I can remember Heathcote houses were the top of the list, and Airly Beach unit were the bottom of the list. Okay. And so I contacted uh, a few real estate agents in Heathcote to to say, "Just this is a sanity check that I did." Mm. Um, and one of them got back to me and with just a curt email saying yeah we'll put you on the list jeremy something pops up we'll let you know um early beach uh the phone rang off the hook agents jeremy fly up here we'll roll out the red carpet we've we've got so many for you to choose from um we'll we'll show you around all day you know they were going out mm. of their way oh someone wants red to buy treatment. we've got oversupply yeah so i knew just from that response, that that at least there's something in this that it, that it kind of works, right. um, and I just kept uh, acquiring more and more data, and uh, uh, yeah, well, the rest is is history. Okay, okay, well, well, let's get into it. Um, I, I do want to go through some of these metrics, as I still find, like I I said at the start of the episode, I, and I don't know how you manage your emotions, but having the benefit of hindsight and it all you know manifest in data it's really frustrating when you see some of the industry titans and i'm i'm talking like people have been around for like 20 30 years talking like absolute rubbish and i'm i'm certainly not an industry titan and i'm certainly less experienced in age than some of these guys like big buyers agents but the data is doesn't have that limitation of age, right? It goes back in different data points, 10, 15, sometimes 20, 30 years. So it's kind of frustrating for me, and I'm sure it would have been for you as well when you kind of clued on, like, actually, these guys have got like an agenda to sell, um, so to speak. Um, 
but let, let's let's go through the the first one. So one thing that I think as soon as someone starts thinking about property investing, they automatically gravitate towards a place like Sydney, a place like Melbourne, maybe even Brisbane, because let's face it, these are the biggest cities on the face of it. This is where the most jobs and absolute numbers are created. This is the, where the most immigration comes in in absolute numbers. Everyone knows these cities. People love to live in these cities. And so they naturally conclude that, yep, these places much, must grow the most as well. Um, like what does the data tell us that uh, is it capital cities or these big three cities that have grown the most over time or, or, or how do you see it? No, no. Um, in fact, when you compare, and, and I've done this, I cannot count how many charts I've looked at where I've compared the, the capital growth of might be two suburbs side by side or two cities or a city versus a suburb. There's a, a common theme uh, that, that you can see in these charts. You, you almost never see one property market start to outperform the other and it just two lines just continue to diverge. Instead, what you see is one line uh, get ahead and then the other catches up. So what I have noticed is that if you are comparing a race, a capital growth race between two suburbs, two cities, the winner is determined more by where you set the start and finish lines than, than by where you buy the property. Right. So I have compared the smallest 10% of significant urban areas like cities uh, versus the biggest like Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth, Adelaide, um, Newcastle, Maitland, all these big significant urban areas. Uh, I've compared their growth rate to the smallest like country towns, regional towns over, I just updated it um, this morning, in fact, over 33 and a half years, there is nothing in it. It's like neck and neck. You cannot say one outperforms the other. You cannot say that Sydney outperforms Kingaroy in Queensland. Uh, you could if you chose carefully the period of time. But if you looked at the chart, you would see that there are all these, um, I call them pinch points, where, where one gets ahead of the other and then they they converge. They diverge and they converge. So if that's happening continually, over the long term, you, you can expect that to, to continue. So what happens is one property market gets way ahead of the other. It becomes comparatively too expensive. And then the, the cheaper alternative looks far more appealing to buyers. That accelerates the rate of growth in the, the second cousin, um, the second class, you know, supposedly second class uh, property market, and it catches up. Uh, so you've got time is a great leveler. There is a, a tendency in the data that, that, that is quite clear cut, a tendency for all property markets to grow at the same rate over the long term. There are some differences, there are some exceptions, but it's, it's quite rare. Right, right. And so that would tell me then, or that would suggest to me that timing the market, you know, particular locations is is very important because let's say in... I mean, we have the benefit of hindsight, but 2013, the preceding seven or eight years in Sydney hadn't performed the best. And so according to this kind of equilibrium law that you're talking about, um, time is a great leveler, then that would have been a great time to invest in Sydney. Um, and obviously we know that since then it's doubled, um, more than doubled, in fact. Um, how yeah, how exactly. do you, um, Jeremy, how do you see 
Like he was sitting here right now in August 2023, uh, just talking high level capital city versus regional. I know there's so many exceptions and nuance to this. New, regional has seen a great run up in the last, even pre COVID, I would say, like Bendigo, Ballarat, Geelong, a lot of these areas did tremendously well. How do you see that sort of um, catch up effect going on? Do you see in the next five or 10 years, capital cities um, tending to outperform? Of course, long term, it's all the same. Or do you see regionals tending to outperform capital cities in, in the sort of medium term horizon? Yeah, that's um, that's an interesting question because I haven't actually. It's not something that I, that I look at because for me, it's a, it's a practical application of the data. So I need to buy an investment property somewhere, and if it happens to be a regional market, I don't care. Um, or if it's a capital city market, I don't care either. But like you pointed out, there are eras when the the regions will outperform, and other eras where the the state capitals will outperform. Uh, so if you're planning to purchase and hold for for the long term, it doesn't really matter. But when you said it's about timing, uh, I think that that is really crucial. Uh, for as long as I can remember, there's always been this saying in, in real estate, location, location, location. And I believe that one of the big changes for artificial intelligence, for, for data in this industry of, uh, of property investing is we're going to see a change of that from location, location, location to timing, timing, timing. It is all about mm. timing. There is a market that's about to enter its boom. Um, it might not be a fantastic market 30 years from now or even five years from now, but right now, uh, this is the best place to buy. And so I don't, I don't care if it's, if it's regional or a big city. I can understand why. Uh, novice investors would would aim for the big cities. There seems like there's there's greater diversification in the economy, and so there's some security that you might think there. But but Perth is is one of the biggest. Um, I mean, it's, I think it's the fifth largest significant urban area in Australia. But but in 2013, at the end of the resources boom, uh, oh. I, when was that? 2015. I, I just know that from 2013 to 2018, it it had some pretty ordinary growth. I think it might have even been negative, while, while Sydney had some extraordinary growth. So even very populous cities um, can suffer. So you, you still are at risk as a property investor. And Sydney, we know, just recently had some, some negative growth too. So it really doesn't matter where you buy, how big it is, there's still a risk and you need to know when is the right time to enter the market. Yeah, yeah. I so grew up I, in... I, I couldn't answer that question about that, regional fine. versus I mean, city. I think the I, way I that you, where you've articulated, it is perhaps even more important for people to really internalize than than like a explicit answer. And like I can definitely say, and and maybe you know this as well, or can relate to it. Like in New Zealand, where I grew up, people didn't not just in property, but just in everything. People don't really categorize regional versus capital city. It's not like I grew up in Napier, so that's a regional area, whereas you grew up in Wellington, so that's like a capital city. People just see every place as like having its own dynamics. And I think, I don't know why we're sort of hung up perhaps in Australia around cap city versus yeah. regional, as yeah, if one's better than the other. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah like, like the USA, you know, you've got so many cities, so many large cities around. And I think Australia is probably heading heading this, the same way. We've got enough diversity 
in some of these regional markets that mm. it's not like it used to be where it's just a a, a one-trick town. It's got one industry there, uh, and if that industry goes uh, belly up, you're in trouble. I, yeah, I just think there's so much opportunity, so much diversity across Australia's geography that that it doesn't matter. Maybe in the past it it was relevant, but certainly not now. Yeah, maybe it's like the the history is etched into our consciousness, and we think of Townsville, for example, mm. as like a mining town, whereas it's not really a mining town anymore. It's it's much right. more diversified. Yeah. Okay, let's go to the second one. Um, so growth is more important than yield or yield is more important than growth? Or do we need to make that trade-off? I, I actually just got a DM in my Facebook um, the other day, and this guy had screenshotted um, something in a men's finance Facebook group, and some buyer's agent was saying, oh, PK is completely wrong because his tagline is, you know, buy high growth, high cash flow property, and that just can't happen. And I've been a buyer's agent for 20 years. And so let me ask you, you're, you're the expert, Jeremy. Um, do you need to make trade-offs or can you consistently um, or sufficiently consistently um, buy properties that have both a, a high yield and high growth outlook? Uh, yeah, you can, but it is only for a short period of time, um, like like the whole timing thing. So uh, I could easily find a, a, a suburb in, say, Sydney right now where there there might be a double-digit growth forecast for the next 12 months, and I could find the same sort of thing elsewhere in a regional town. But the Sydney property is going to have like a 3% yield, and the regional town might have 5%. So uh, it's pretty straightforward what I would choose. I'd go for the for the higher yield. And yeah, I believe that you can find both high yield and and good capital growth, uh, like a like above average capital growth. That above average capital growth is only going to be for a short while. Eventually the market will will balance again. But you want that short while to be the the point of time starting from settlement when you purchase. Mm-hmm. Um so that you've you've built in that equity and uh if something happens disastrously, you have to sell. Then at least you've you've got some equity there. Um, it's it's an eternal uh, challenge, question, debate. This whole cash flow versus capital growth. I, I believe that a lot of people can get get um, duck if they focus too heavily on one and and not the other. Mm. And of course, it also depends on the individual. Like if someone was just about to a- enter into retirement, they want they want a cash flow positive uh, portfolio to replace their salary. Whereas uh, an investor who's maybe in their 30s, 40s, even 50s, uh, growth is still going to be your your best friend. It's ironic that the, the fastest way to a retirement-ready cash flow positive portfolio of properties is actually through capital growth, not through, through yield. But I can understand why investors want to want to focus on the cash flow because it's simpler you can what's what's the rental yield for this property uh you know it right now so you can do your calculations most people have got no idea what what the capital growth forecast is going to be so mm-hmm. ignore the unknown and go with what's known uh so you can see why there is that that uh, fixation but to answer the question I, I believe you can have have both sure sure no well well said and i think um, other than the fact that you can just kind of map out exactly what positive cash flow, um, you know, sort of quantum will be on a property, I think people should 
think about cash flow insofar as it affects their borrowing capacity and their just household budget. Like that is a very important thing because I know so many right now listings are going up as we speak in Melbourne and Sydney, especially from investors. And I don't know, I'm, my hypothesis is that these are people who bought without realizing that interest rates can even go this high in such a short period of time. <laughs> and they they just didn't do the cash flows properly or had they bought in areas that grew just as much as Sydney, if not more in the last one or two or three years, and but in more areas with five, six, seven percent yields, then they wouldn't have to sell. Anyway, that's just a hypothesis and inference, but it's a, I think it's a, a worthwhile lesson for for people to put in their pocket. Um, and then the other one, Jeremy, is closer to the CBD equals better growth. You know, as if ah, somehow yeah. there's some sort of end of the rainbow, you know, gold golden light pot in the CBD. Yeah, What's your thoughts yeah. on that? What's your data thoughts well, on this? Well, the, yeah, historical data says there's there's nothing in it. You know, I, I'm always looking at this this sort of data to improve my investing. So if I can't find anything in it, um, you know, I don't care if someone argues with me. I'm I'm not going to use that. Um, and this is something that has been around for so long, and uh, I blame content marketing. Uh, which I mean, that's what I'm doing right now. Uh, I mean, I'm on your podcast. I'm doing a little bit of content marketing, but you get a, a handful of entrepreneurs who are so desperate for more customers, they just make shit up. And this has been around for so long, and I believe it's just been copied and propagated from one to the other. And it, what's worse is there's been some analysis done um, that's been flawed in the past, and people have read that, and it's come from organizations with big names there's there's this one chart that i that i've referred to in the past that was put together by the reserve bank of australia you may have heard of them um and the real estate institute of australia's two two pretty big names and it had one fundamental flaw in the analysis in that they were only looking at one period of time i repeated their chart their chart said yes you've got to buy close to the cbd there's there's going to be this ever-growing disparity between the haves and the haves nots and it's based on proximity to CBD. So I repeated that for a different period of time and got the, the complete opposite conclusion. So there's there's flaws in the analysis that's been done in the past. Um, I've looked at uh, the past 30 years, even 40 years of data. I've used different data sets, and there is nothing in it that I can use uh, in, an, in an algorithm to get better capital growth, especially over the longer term, by buying closer to the CBD. Um, it's it's a misnomer, and people will say to me, "Well, Jeremy, how did how did prices of properties so close to CBD get get so expensive then? If it wasn't capital growth, they were always more expensive. And if you start a, a, a suburb right now on the fringe of a city, it will be cheaper than than the centre of the city. Yeah. So there is a a correlation between proximity to CBD and price range, but not capital growth. Right? There's right. there's really nothing in it. Can't use it. I mean, but when people like me, we hear that it's almost like a sense of relief because then it's like, okay, we don't have to compromise growth. We don't have to sacrifice growth and we can actually buy something with a with an okay yield, right? We don't need yeah, to get something yeah, with like too. a 3% yield. Then we're basically like imprisoned in our day job to, to forever try to pay that thing off. So it's a massive relief, if anything, like really understanding this data. And I don't, I don't want to be cynical, but maybe some of these myths or they're kind of propagated or or further exacerbated because 
expensive property buyers agents or whoever course i don't know whoever gets more commissions on them right so it's like oh that's a that's a convenient way to say buy close yeah, expensive city yeah. Um, I, properties. I have, yeah i've seen over the years a lot of people suggest the best property is coincidentally not far from our office <laughs> that's yeah, yeah. classic classic yeah, it's, it, yeah i mean it is easier to um to convince a client hmm uh this is a quality asset um to me qual quality investment when i'm thinking of investment i'm thinking i want low risk i mm -hmm. want high growth and i want high yield and i don't care if that's property or shares or or, or ostrich eggs, eggs or, or bitcoin or whatever i mean I, I do want low risk i want high growth and i want high yield yeah to say that a quality asset is more expensive well we should should see something in the data then more expensive markets should outperform, uh, but they don't, and and they're actually even uh, riskier. So historical analysis of the 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 volatility. So volatility is a measure of, of risk. The more volatility, the more wild swings up and down, uh, the the riskier a market is. So you might see you know Bitcoin has tremendous volatility. The share market has more volatility than the property market, but the top decile, the top ten percent. Of property markets in Australia have had more volatility than the bottom 10%. Uh, so there, whenever we get in recessionary times and, and the property market is heading backwards, I, I quite often hear on social media these, these half-baked experts, uh, for want of a better word, saying, oh, there's, there's a flight to quality. But actually, there is a flight to affordability in the mm. tough times because those, those cheaper markets tend to to hold their own, uh, they have more stable prices, and it's the expensive markets. They fly up in the good times and they plummet in the bad times. So they are actually more volatile. So there's more risk the closer to the CBD, uh, the more expensive you are. Um, like you mentioned before, there's there's high yield further away, um, and there's no difference in growth. So there's there's no reason for property investors to um, stretch themselves and buy in these relatively unaffordable areas. Yeah. I can I can kind of empathize with those people who do market this in their content because it's so like even for themselves, like they may not be malicious people. They may just be actually drinking the Kool-Aid. Like it makes so much logical sense. Like let's move to the next one, number four, like closer to the ocean or, or water body or lake or river or canal, uh, closer to the train station, closer to a shopping center, the better the right. growth. Okay. And it, it makes so much sense. It's like, of course, yeah, I want to live close to the water. I want to be close to you walking to a train station. I want to be, you know, close to a shopping center. Who doesn't? So like, it's such an easy sell, but what does the data show about that in terms of growth? Yeah. yeah. The, the data shows that over the long term, there's, again, there's nothing in that. Um, and the, the reason why is like you said, I want to be close to a train station. I want to have the beach there. Um, a teenage boy wants a Ferrari, but it's just wishful thinking. They do not influence the price of Ferraris. The price of Ferraris are influenced by, um, you know, mi middle-aged men like me who have something to prove, and they go into a dealership and start haggling. So you've got to actually uh, put your hand up at auction for a for a, a, a genuine oceanfront property at Tamarama selling for four million dollars. Uh, that's what it. That's what changes prices it's that sort of demand now if 
a suburb was to receive a uh, a new train station so a train line is extended through that suburb uh, there will be a period of time of above average growth for that property market because it's received a new amenity that makes it more attractive but over a period of time that above average capital growth rate will result in higher prices until the benefit of that amenity is then factored into the price of the property so analysis that i've done uh, for train stations, for beaches, for schools, uh, proximity to shopping centres, airports, has shown that over the long term, there is no advantage being closer to that amenity or having that amenity in your suburb. Uh, Queensland University of Technology did an interesting study. Uh, they looked at historical uh, data for Brisbane. Now, in, I think it was in the 80s somewhere, Brisbane had a uh, a new runway. There was going to be a change in flight path. There's a bunch of suburbs that were going to be negatively affected by that. And uh, QUT found that for a period of four years, there were a handful of suburbs in Brisbane that underperformed the Brisbane growth rate, and they were in this flight path. But after four years of lower growth, that negativity was then factored into the price of property, and from then on, it was business as usual. Same sort of capital growth. Right. So it's change in amenities that will push prices faster or slower in this case for the for the airport in Brisbane. It, but having that amenity there over the long term, if there's always been a good school, then uh, it's already factored into the price of property. And so historical data shows that over, say, 30 years, uh, there's no advantage in having a train station in your suburb or not, uh, being a beachside suburb or not. Sure. That's that's such counterintuitive analysis, but it, even in the short term, I, I know you mentioned that perhaps on aggregate, there is a change um, you know, in, in capital growth momentum in the short term when there's a change in amenity. But even like just off the top of my off my top of my head, there's so many examples that I can think of where like there wasn't, even if there is short-term change in, in amenity. And it just goes to show that there's so many other demand and supply factors at play. For example, oh, obviously yeah. Brisbane just got a new runway just on that example. I think one year ago, two, a couple of years ago, got a new runway. And a lot of these areas like Bulimba and Ascot, parts of Hamilton are now on the flight path. These are all very well-to-do areas. But all those areas have gone up like 40%, basically the same as most other areas in Brisbane yeah. since the last boom. And even on the point of train stations like Brisbane up through Petrie out to Kipper Ring had that new line extension. And those areas didn't really outperform any other area in the last five years. Mm. Um, yeah, there's a lot of factors. Yeah, yeah. A lot of factors that affect a, a buyer's decision making. It's not just low crime, good schools. You know, there's there's a huge list. So yeah, if one thing changes, it's unlikely to drive, you know, price growth amazingly. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I want to talk about high incomes now because I know you watched that episode. And and guys, if you haven't watched the episode, there was a really interesting and and popcorn worthy um episode that everyone should watch where I was interviewed on the Elephant in the Room podcast. Um, and we really discussed and debated um this concept of do incomes have a correlation with capital growth? In other words, if uh, incomes are growing really swiftly in an area, just on an absolute basis, not in relative terms to other areas, not in relative terms to the state average, just absolute, those areas, do they or do they not grow more in terms of house prices? What What's your, or what does the data say about that, Jeremy? Uh, yeah, well, I've done an uh 
a fair bit of analysis on this and got into a lot of arguments on it because it's another one of those counterintuitive things. You think um, the overall concept makes perfect sense. If people have more money, surely they can afford more. Yeah. Uh, but in trying to use this practically, uh, what we've got is uh, family household income from census. So it's once every five years. Now, I've looked at data dating back to 1991 when there were uh, household family incomes recorded, and I've measured capital growth. And certainly, higher income areas do not have higher capital growth compared to lower income areas. I've looked at um, changing income as well, and I uh, haven't been able to find anything reliable there. There may be some magical uh, combination that I haven't analysed, but um, if you are a novice investor and looking to invest in an area, you're going to look for this this sort of data, and it's not going to help you. Historically, it just just hasn't worked. Now there are eras, depending on where you set the the start and finish line of your measurement of capital growth. There are eras where high income areas do outperform, and then it uh, the reverse happens. Uh, low income areas outperform. So using some sort of um, Trying to come up with some something consistent that's reliable. There, there isn't anything in the data. So I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm always looking for metrics to improve the algorithm, and yeah. I can't use that data. It's as, it's as simple as that. I'm not going to throw it in there because some old school believer um, suggests that that it works. It has to work, Jeremy. It just has to. Yeah, I'm sorry. It, it, it doesn't. Sure. And and what about marginal incomes, Jeremy? So this is a, a little bit of a nuance. So, okay, fine, income changes in a suburb don't have any effect on capital growth or no, no correlation at least. Uh, what about marginal income? So like in the last one year, a whole lot of additional higher income people have just moved into a suburb. Does Do you think that has an impact in the short term, not 30-year data, but just short-term in terms of capital growth? Well, yeah, at the end of the day, it's the data that tells the truth, and I haven't done that analysis. So there could be something in that. Uh, my guess is that there's something else in property markets that's driving demand. Something makes a suburb more appealing, and that pushes up prices. In order to buy into that market, you need to have a higher income now because prices are going up. So it could be that capital growth drives incomes for a particular suburb. Um, but yeah, I haven't looked at marginal, um, I haven't done that sort of detailed analysis. So I, I, I can't say for sure. The data would be quite, kind of hard to get that because it would have to be fairly real-time data to see if there's a short-term impact of the last six months of buyer yeah, that's, activity. That's another issue with the census data. And some people have suggested, well, you know, people could put anything on their on their census about what they're earning. But if if that's the case, then all the more reason why you can't use that data. So yeah, again, we've 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 got no use for it. Sure, sure. So as people are, are watching or listening to this episode, now they're probably scratching their heads. They're like, okay, all the things that were like in my top 10 checklist of where to buy property <laughs> is just being completely like demystified. I've got one last one that we can chew upon population growth. Like surely, like, come on, give me, throw me a bone here. Surely <laughs> if population increases in a suburb or whatever, surely prices have to increase, right? What What's, what's the data showing? <laughs> Again, uh, there's nothing really that can be used in the data. And 
again, at the top level, makes perfect sense. More people, more demand, surely that works. But uh, and, and I think that that does make sense at a, at a macro level. Like when you're thinking about Australia, uh, if we have more uh, migrants come to the country, that's more demand for property. We need to build more properties. If if we're not building as fast as they're coming, then surely there's got to be that, that sort of pressure on prices. But then think of the practical application of, of that concept. I need to buy a property that sits in a street of a suburb um, where is that suburb in, in all of Australia? If you then go and look at population growth at a suburb level, like a micro level, the, the, there's a problem there because the highest, fastest rate of population growth that can ever occur in a suburb happens because of additional supply. So developers come in, they build a whole bunch of, of dwellings, uh, those dwellings are obviously vacant until people come in and occupy them. So you actually need, uh, for population growth to be above average, you actually need above average supply. And of course, supply is the enemy of capital growth. So uh, you're sort of uh, kicking yourself in the pants there. So again, it's it's one of those metrics that has been um, bounced around for decades. It's It's widely believed, it's assumed. Uh, but can't practically be used to find outperforming locations. Have Have you ever done any analysis on the sort of adjacent or corollary impact of population growth on neighbouring suburbs? For example, we all know what you've just described, a whole lot new supply and a whole lot new population. So they somewhat balance each other out. Pimpama here in Queensland, just I'm in Gold Coast, so just north of the Gold Coast, Omeo, that kind of phenomenon has happened. Of course, those areas are boomed, but so is everywhere around, around Brisbane and the Gold Coast in the last few years. With so much population going into those areas, will areas that don't have any spare land capacity, any developable land supply, closer to more attractive living areas, like let's say Kumbaba, let's say Labrador, let's say Pacific Pines, let's, I'm not sure if you're familiar with these areas, by the way, let's say um, the Highland Park, like areas around other areas where there's been so much population go in, but these other areas, they don't have any more population, nor do they have land supply. Did they get some sort of um, positive externality? Do they get some sort of positive benefit from that sort of what's just gone on in the neighbouring suburbs with all the additional population? Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, gee, that's yeah. I have to admit that I, ha I haven't uh, gone to that level of detail. Look, that uh, it, it has been fairly cursory uh, examination, and in fact, with a lot of these metrics. Uh, you you look at it from a cursory level and you think oh i'm not going to i'm not going to waste any more time with that because there are other metrics that that i need to to look at but i have heard of um other uh, analy analysis from other researchers where they may have gone to a little bit more trouble than me and mm. found some peculiar way in which they could actually make use of this sort of a metric so this might be another one of those cases that you're you're talking about. So I would need to do some more analysis on that specific case. But yeah. certainly for the um for the novice investor looking up census data, um, yeah, that they, they're going to be misled. Well, I shouldn't say misled, they may be misled. They may be looking at supply when they're interpreting it as demand, which sure, sure. is a horrible mistake to make.
Sure. And for the record, that wasn't a loaded question. I generally don't know the answer to that question <laughs> right. either. And I mean, I'm just trying to demystify because a lot of people do say buy in aspirational suburbs, you know, instead of the Pimpama, you buy in, in Pacific Pines because it's where everyone from Pimpama wants to move. That's that's a generalization, may not be true. But I don't think there's there's actually any data to necessarily support that, or at least I haven't seen any um, till yeah. date. Hey, there was a suburb you mentioned there because I've um, starting O R M E A U. Omeo, I think that's how you pronounce it. Omeo, okay. Because yeah. I've never heard someone say it. I see it pop up in the data for years. I've seen, and I've just thought, okay, Omeo. <laughs> yeah, all right. Now I'm I with you. I, I did like a video on Perth and some Melbourne areas the other day, and I was pronouncing it completely wrong. And people in the comments were like, clearly you're not from Perth. <laughs> clearly you're not from Melbourne. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not. I, I do want to ask you one question, though, Jeremy. Um, I know you have charts to kind of validate and um, crystallize, I suppose, the accuracy of your algorithms and things like that. But just like anecdotally, kind of just breaking it down human to human, um, have you invested based on your, like when you did get into all of this data, had you then bought properties in Australia using it? And did you find that they outperformed properties then you know, back in 2002 or, or whatever? Well, I haven't actually purchased. I have used the data to sell. So picking oh, which property should I sell, um, I've chosen the ones with the lower demand to supply ratio. But I have looked at the historical performance. And uh, yeah, when I uh, when I was in the early days, I thought, let's see how, how this algorithm performs versus uh, national growth rate, for example. And then I, I thought, well, hang on a sec. Um, there may be a whole bunch of experts out there that are easily outperforming the national growth rate. Um, so I should compare the DSR to their hotspot picks. Right. Um, and I was appalled. Uh, some of the highest profile industry experts have some of the most atrocious past performance. So I went back to just comparing it to the national growth rate. And yeah, of course, I wouldn't use it if it didn't outperform. Yeah. Um, so it does, but it still has some failures. It's not it's not perfect. And I'm sure even when version three comes out in in uh, around October later this year, uh, there will still be some failures. There's always going to be some risk investing in real estate. And uh, yeah, the the data uh, can only do so much. But um, you, and an individual's fundamental research on top of the data is, is limited as well. So you just want to limit the the mistakes on the downside. So particularly when I've been looking at the, the DSR's past performance, the DSR plus version two of the algorithm, um, even on the downside when it failed to outperform the national growth rate, if it picked a, a supposedly high performing market, it, it wasn't a disaster. Hmm. So it would still have some growth, just not as good as uh, the national growth rate, yeah. uh, but but I personally have not been in a position to take advantage of uh, version two, um, but I I definitely plan to be the first user of version three <laughs> uh, before the end of the year. Yeah, nice. hopefully, <laughs> nice people should should definitely check it out and and I think there's something to be said because I think most property experts hopefully I don't fall into this category kind of profess themselves as experts and pro profess themselves as all-knowing and maybe there's kind of like some sort of marketing humility in there or whatever but um 
I really find that with you, Jeremy, it's it's really kind of like a conquest or journey for truth. And and I think that's what people vibe with. And maybe you fall into this trap or fell into this trap. I know I certainly did. I always put other people on a pedestal and think, oh, that person has X years more experience than me. Surely they know more, more than me. Or that person has access to all of these industry professionals and they have this podcast with like 100 episodes or whatever. Surely they know more than me. And I think that can actually be to our detriment sometimes because mm. they actually may not know that and they may actually not know more than you. And in fact, it might be a lot of misinformation. So the more you consume that content, you're actually going like backwards. You're going in the wrong direction. Like my mum used to say, one step in the right direction is more beneficial than 10 steps in the wrong direction. Um, so I think it behooves everyone to, to you know, we didn't share the charts in this episode, but maybe let me know or Jeremy know we can do another episode and we actually go through a deep dive on various charts. But it behooves everyone to just have that sort of learner's mentality and question everything and question everyone. Like question Jeremy, question me, question everyone. I, you know, those research reports, those hotspot reports that you're referring to, I remember first subscribing in 2014 or something. And then I subscribed for like the next five years and every year was like Ipswich I was like when is Ipswich going to finally <laughs> boom you know and Good obviously right, it did boom right. but yeah, everything boomed so yeah, I just picking the same suburb every year um sooner or later in 20 years time it'll it'll boom yeah 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 so, there is uh I mean I'm I'm happy to be proven wrong if if someone uh can show me the data but I'm not going to take an, a, a, yet another opinion there's just uh millions of them and uh yeah I think there's a lot of people out there who think they are an expert because they have an opinion. And, uh, and I've found plenty of experts are, are unteachable with, with data, especially if it, if it contradicts something they've, they've said publicly before. So yeah, you do run into, uh, long held beliefs and it's very hard to, to, to get beyond those. But what you were saying before, you know, challenge everyone, be skeptical about everything. I think that's a yeah, very healthy advice. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. And and we're not here. I mean, um, if you watch uh, some of Jeremy's content, he's he's very uh pa- I would say passionate, but like clinically passionate about disproving things. But we're not here to um denigrate anyone or, or put down anyone. I think the especially like you're someone like yourself who's and I would say like myself, or like intellectually curious. We don't want to put down anyone, but we feel like a great sense of accomplishment when we prove a hypothesis correct, whether it's through our own data or something that we we get from another person or we create a synthesis of various like things that we find and we're like, okay, well, that must mean this and that must mean that. Like that for me, at least in property, is like my greatest joy. So, <laughs> so I think that that's Yeah, yeah, that's those sort of insights. Yeah, they they do give you a good buzz, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and admittedly, you know, I I believe there's a lot of well-meaning people in the industry who who are just a little bit mistaken. Some some are a lot mistaken, but most of them, it's like just any any human being. There's there's not a whole bunch of spookers out there trying to deceive. There's just people who who don't know any better, and uh, and and some of them can be absolutely charming individuals, um, and have your best interests at heart, uh, like my mum. But they don't know property, and they don't know data, and they, yeah, and they can can mislead, unfortunately. So it's it's just something uh, we need to be aware of. And of course, 
the data age has changed a lot. So if you've been in industry for a long time, say say 20 years, the data age is still relatively new mm. to you. And that may be hard to adapt to. Uh, so a lot of the, uh, the, the new investors, the new buyers agents out there, um, I, I find them more willing to learn and, uh, more tightly embrace, uh, this data age. Mm. But you can get some, some old schoolers who still using their tea leaves and tarot cards to, to, to find <laughs> good, uh, good growth locations. And, uh, yeah, I think, yeah, investors just need to be, challenging people all the time challenging the professionals yeah don't don't outsource don't outsource the responsibility yeah this is your money and no one really cares about it as much as you do on the other side of the spectrum of what you said just said around tarot cards is like then the buzzwords um artificial intelligence and machine learning and this and i honestly think i mean i used to work in advanced analytics back at in my working days at virgin real estate data really feel free to challenge me on this, Jeremy, I find that real estate data really isn't as big data, as nuanced, as reliable, as deep as other industries. So when it comes to AI and all this, maybe, maybe I'll be wrong in the future when it does develop more, but you know, watch out for a lot of those buzzwords as well. And I do notice that you don't, even though you're probably the um, preeminent data guy, so to speak, in Australian real estate, I, I do notice that you don't really use those terms a hell of a lot. No, but I, I do believe that there is uh, an eventuality coming our way that um, we will have to accept what the algorithm tells us. <laughs> uh, I asked ChatGPT in January, what will be the top growth markets in Australia in 2023? Yeah, and uh, it told me to consult with a real estate expert. So, oh, did it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which I thought was rude. It it obviously didn't know I was an expert. Oh. So I told it, well, thanks very much, but I'll consult with uh, an expert AI. Okay. Um, yeah. Anyway, it, well, um, at, at least it didn't say buyer's agent. That gives me some solace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's still a work in progress, but I do believe that sooner or later. Um, yeah, people might like me will will be out of a job, um, and yeah, the algorithms will will know all. But but yeah, like you said, the um the depth of data. When you think about how much of a property market transacts in a single month, for example, um, it's it's typically one percent or less. So here we are trying to say, here's the typical value for properties in this month in this. This suburb and it's based on one percent of the properties in that market transacting so we don't have that sort of depth yeah the, the data age is still evolving and uh yeah so ai has still a, a fair way to go um i don't trust my own algorithm i will still check a few things um, yeah. and and yeah i encourage every investor to do that let's just keep using them at the moment as shortlisting tools and 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 yeah hold them accountable and keep watching them closely. Yeah, nice one. Okay, La last question. What's what's a piece of advice that you would give to your 30-something-year-old self before you started investing in real estate? Wow. Um, yeah, take your time. Don't be so aggressive. Uh, you'll get yourself in trouble. You don't have to catch up. Um, you know, back in the day, there used to be uh, magazines, property magazines that were in print, your investment property magazine. I used to write for them and Australian Property Investor magazine. Uh, they would interview successful investors 
and some might do renovations, some might do subdivisions, some might do high cash flow. They'd all have a different strategy and they'd all be successful. They had one thing in common. They were always asked, what would you have done differently? And they all had the same answer. I would have started sooner. So I, I would challenge uh, investors to, just, to get into the market by hook or by crook. If you are, uh, especially if you are young, just get in and start earlier. I mean, I hear of investors who are buying in their 20s. And I think, mm -hmm. wow, you know, they'll, they'll, be in their, their, they'll be retired in their 50s and, and, and they want their friends to retire because they've got no one to play with, you know. <laughs> oh, we want to travel. We want to go, uh, sorry, we're still working. Um, um, yeah, I just, I, you've just made the right decision if you can, if you can think about it early enough. Yeah, no, no, so well said, so well said, and um, thank you so much for your time, Jeremy. I, I really appreciate it. It's, uh, I think we went well over an hour, so I'm really great, grateful yeah. for for being here with us. Well, thanks very much for having me on your podcast, PK. So it's, yeah, it's it's been a, an honor for me too. Oh, thank you very much. And thank you, everyone who's listening. It was a long time coming. And I, I'm sure so many of you, maybe even thousands, um, were looking forward to an episode like this. And and go follow Jeremy on, on his socials. And um, on I, I follow him on his, on his LinkedIn. So go LinkedIn, Jeremy Shepard, and you'll get all the updates on his new website and everything like that. But genuinely right here sitting with us is someone who's probably like the most... Um, yeah, just clinical data person in Australia with no agenda. And that that's kind of hard to find, um, me included. So it's, it's pretty, I don't know if that's high praise or not, but yeah, that that's some praise <laughs> for what it's worth. Um, thank you for being with us. Hit the subscribe button, give it a like, and let me know as well on the Facebook group or in the comments if you want Jeremy back and we can deep dive different charts visually. Um, thanks again and, and thank you, Jeremy. Thank you.